Hello and welcome to episode number 105 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. All things related and debated in agriculture, I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, September 13th, 2010. Today on the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Larry Korn. Larry is a permaculture instructor, educator, and author. He has been an active student and practitioner of permaculture and natural farming for several decades and is well known for his friendship with the great pioneer Masanobu Fukuoka. Larry Korn, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Well, it's good to be here. Well, I wanted to uh, talk about the life and work of Masanobu Fukuoka. Tell us about his early life and his origins and his childhood. Well, he was born in uh, on the island of Shikoku in a small farming village. Uh, his his father was uh, fairly influential in the village. He was the mayor for part of the time. So besides growing up as a rice farmer, uh, Mr. Fukuoka was trained as a plant pathologist. And as a young man in his 20s, he went to Yokohama to uh, took a job at the agricultural inspection station in Yokohama, where he was inspecting uh, fruits that were coming into Japan and going out of Japan, um, just to be sure that, uh, uh, you know, that they were clean when they came and left. So he had never been outside of his village, and he kind of partied a lot, and besides his work, he he pretty much burned the candle at both ends, and at, at one point had to be hospitalized for just basically exhaustion. And while he was uh, one morning after one of these, uh, after he had gotten out of the hospital, he was sitting on a bluff overlooking the harbor, and he had an insight. And the insight uh, had to do with nature and people's place, uh, proper place and relationship to nature. He saw that nature was perfect had evolved and all the interrelationships were 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 just right and that the problems that were developing had to do with people people using their limited intellect were thinking that they could improve upon nature and that seemed impossible to him and in fact whenever people did try to improve upon nature then there would there would be a side effect and then people would deal with the side effect by applying their, again, human knowledge and intellect. And then maybe they would solve the problem or maybe not. But whatever, one thing was sure, there was another problem would develop. And then the, then another and then another. And so most of the work, that created a lot more work for people. And so he tried to explain this insight to others, and they, at the time, this was in the 30s, so at the time people were looking forward to a kind of a future where science would lead the way into this uh, wonderful world. And so what he decided to do was take this understanding, go back to his farm, and apply this way of thinking to agriculture and show how it could be very useful to humanity. So he uh, took over his father's orchard. He was the oldest son in the family, so he knew that eventually he would be coming back to farm. 
but he did. He came back a little sooner than expected, and he took over the farm. And so his the first thing that he did was he said, well, if nature is perfect, then he's just going to sit back and let, and let nature do it all. And the first thing he did was, well, he killed about 200 citrus trees. And then he realized that, that these trees had already been pruned. They'd already received the benefit of human activity, the, quote, benefit of human activity. And once that happens, people are responsible uh, are going to be responsible for needing to prune that tree for its entire lifetime. And by just abandoning nature in that state, um, you know, it was uh, irresponsible. And the trees, the branches crossed, and disease and insects uh, came in, and the, the trees were wiped out. So you also notice that the soil in the orchard was had been... Uh, Eroded all the topsoil was gone. They were, he was farming essentially on on hard red clay that had very little in the way of uh, nutrients left anymore. So he set about to uh, um, improve the soil. And the first thing he did was he planted deep rooting root crops like uh, dandelion and uh, daikon and burdock that have a deep taproot that would go down and start to soften up the soil. And then he added um, other soil builders like buckwheat and uh, the radish family, mustard and radish. And and then he, he, he started growing a ground cover of white clover, a nitrogen fixer. And over time, that really, really improved the uh, uh, quality of the soil in his orchard. So you know he didn't have a model of he didn't ha- he had no idea where he was going with this at the time but but he his just following that way of thinking you know instead of thinking well how about if I tried this and how about try trying that uh, his way was was different he said well how about if I didn't do this and how about if I didn't do that and he peeled back one after the other all of the activities that farmers were doing at the time, uh, thinking, well, why are we doing that? And he found that almost everything was, that it was a compensation for the last thing that people had done. And then then before that, so he even took on um, issues like, well, why are we flooding the rice fields? And why are we plowing the soil? And uh, some basic things like that. So his eventually... His farming technique turned out to be quite remarkable. He, he didn't plow for 45 years, and yet he cropped uh, rice and barley in succession in the same field for all that time. Eventually, his yields matched or exceeded the neighbors' farms, where they had been using, of course, all the benefits of human technology, the tractors and agricultural chemicals and, uh, you know, herbicides and, and so forth. Uh, and so his his conclusion was, well, if I'm getting yields that are comparable to the, na- to the neighbors and I'm doing a lot less work and the soil improves every year as a result of this way of farming, then where's the benefit of all the technology that the neighbors are using? 
And so eventually he did prove what he had set out to prove, you know, all those years before, um, that there was really no benefit to all of that. And simply by going back and taking advantage of, you know, nature, the way nature is and fitting, living within nature and fitting in within the natural cycles, well, we, you know, we can live a, 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 a life of abundance and do very little work. Then we'll have time to write poetry and create music and visit with friends. So I want to ask so, I want to ask you, Larry, about this initial mystical experience that you described that he had, um, mm -hmm. where he sees nature as being perfect, and then he goes and abandons his citrus orchard. Was what? And then later on, he develops all these practices that you're describing as natural farming. Do you think that yes. this was a completion of his vision in the sense of him realizing that people are in fact a part of nature, which wasn't a part of his initial realization? Well, um, the the way that the the real guideline was to observe nature very closely and to see how does nature work. You know, what is it? Of course, we can't understand nature, but we can at least get a sense of the interrelationships that exist and, and trying to put that back together. And then the other key ingredient in all of this is to put people back into the picture in a way that they fit in. And just as any other, you know, uh, component of natural, of natural systems, you know, people, the event, okay, the, what, what he saw was that people had separated themselves from nature, that they that they were thinking that they were gods in a way, or they were better than nature, arrogantly thinking that they could improve on nature. And in doing that, they separated themselves, pulled them out of the whole system, as if like rules of ecology all of a sudden didn't apply to them anymore. So when you get deeper into his philosophy, it, it really has to do with with a way of thinking, and that way of thinking is is uh, well, it's it's the way of thinking that, for example, sees a you know when you see a, a ladybug in the fields, you right away think, oh, that's a beneficial insect, or when you see an aphid, that's a bad guy. Well. Once people do that, then we have truly separated ourselves from nature, and, the, and we'll never get there. They're all they're all part of nature. All of the insects they're all good. And his, for example, means of insect control is to create habitat for as many different types of insects as possible. And then, whenever some you know um, insect say gets a little out of control in one part of the field because it has ideal conditions and a source of food and so forth, the predator's right there to keep things in balance. And this is just the way of nature. And then if we create those conditions, then people don't have to worry about insect control. But, but we spread the herbicides and, and, and clean the fields completely of habitat for insects, and once we do that, then we have to take on the job forevermore of managing the insect situation, and that, of course, is a losing battle. 
so this is so it it really it, it really is eventually aiming at putting people back in the right proper original relationship with nature and that's why he you know the most quoted passage in the one star evolution is that uh that the ultimate goal of natural farming is not just growing crops it's the cultivation and perfection of human beings that's where it all starts well this is definitely fascinating and um i think for the benefit of our listeners i'd like you to just talk more about some examples of how this way of thinking actually played out on his farm um if you could just maybe talk about some of these specific practices in more detail sure um well, he got the idea for the rotation of first let me say that his his rice fields he's got about an acre and a quarter of rice fields, and the orchard is about ten acres, which is a fairly large farm in japan by Japanese standards citrus he sells all the rice and barley, and the citrus is the main cash crop but he he got the idea for the no tillage non flooded field system of rice and barley growing when he passed a field this was in like november after the rice harvest and he had noticed that there were a few rice plants that had were not harvested on the side of the field and the stalks fell over and he saw the rice was already sprouting up a little bit in the fall and the straw was covering the seeds and he said well gee how come we're saving the seeds. What people do, you know, the way to grow rice is that you save the seed over the winter, then create a starter bed in the spring and transplant it out. And he was saying, well, rice naturally falls to the ground in the autumn, so he started seeding in the autumn. He walked to the forest and he saw that the forest was never plowed, so, you know, that the plowing, quote, plowing, occurs through the through the activity of the roots that are going down massaging the soil and making channels and the earthworms and the other insects and micro microbial activity that keeps the soil loose um and allows the air and the water to circulate through just fine so we stop plowing and he, he, the rice fields you know in the spring during the monsoon that valley where he farmed was naturally flooded but then the flood went, would go away by mid-June, and so he took the, rice, the water out of the fields from late June. And you know, the, then he established a ground cover of white clover all through the rice fields, and there's weeds and other plants just come up in the rice fields. It looks completely different than the neighbors' very neat, neat right, rice fields that are in rows and nothing growing besides, you know, just the rice. Um, so he, so anyway, he got the, he got the idea by observing nature and, and imitating it. Now, another interesting thing that uh, he developed was the way he grows vegetables. Now, he's got a, his, his wife, Ayako, managed a small organic vegetable garden right next to the house right out the back door where they had a little compost pile and and mixed the kitchen scraps and it was pretty much a traditional 
Asian method of vegetable growing. But up in the orchard, he decided to grow vegetables like wild plants, and he grew them in the spaces between the orchard trees, mainly by mixing the seeds of lots of different vegetables and just simply tossing them out there at the right time. And what he wanted to do was not go through the process of, I think tomatoes would grow very well here, and this is a little shaded, so I'm going to put the leafy vegetables here. He didn't want to be the one deciding. He wanted to put all of the possibilities out there for nature, and he would, and then he was often surprised at where things came up and where they didn't, and he just went that way. So when you walk through his orchard, it's, you know, there's there's weeds and clovers and medicinal plants growing all over in the ground cover, but there's also vegetables growing pretty much everywhere. Sometimes you don't even see them, and you're just walking along and, you know, kick something and look down, and there's a squash growing down there in the weeds and so forth. A lot of these plants reseed themselves and act like uh, perennials. Um, but there is... so. So anyway, he also got that idea just from observing nature, and this is pretty much the way it happens. But he, there is a pretty sophisticated, it's simple, but a sophisticated technique for doing that. Um, some of the seeds he has to wrap in clay pellets to protect them, you know, if they uh, need extra time to germinate or if they need to be protected from um, slugs or birds. He'll wrap them in a clay pellet before he tosses them out there. And he does kind of pile up bamboo here and there so that the squash and tomatoes can run over them and the vegetables eventually shade out a lot of the weeds and and get get a foothold in there. He doesn't trellis tomatoes. He lets them just run all over. And uh, same with cucumbers, of course. And so... Then again, the vegetable gardening pretty much runs itself. The 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 goal, and eventually what did happen was that the system pretty much runs itself. There are some some chores and maintenance activities that need to take place, but um, once it's in place, it's a pretty self-sustaining system. Okay, now you mentioned his. Um approach to fruit trees and the fact that the fruit trees that were accustomed to being pruned uh, then needed to be pruned in order to stay alive. But he continued to work on this problem and actually uh, found some ways to get trees to grow naturally. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, um, Fruit trees have been improved or have been fiddled with by people for for so long that it's it's a little difficult to understand what the natural form of these fruit trees are anymore but he went out again into the back out into zone 5 as the permaculturists call it you know the, out into the wilds of nature and observed the way trees grow and he saw that there were three or four main um, uh, models. I mean, the tree generally grows from a central leader, and the branches grow out alternately or in whorls, 
and sometimes they come up as you know multi-stemmed from the start but he, he identified the different types of trees and what their standard form originally is and then what little pruning he did do was to keep keep the tree growing according to the natural form and the advantage of that of course is almost no pruning and also that the light and the air circulates through and the light reaches all of the leaves uh the you know and he talked about how oh pruning you know the pruning methods they come and go and every time you look around somebody's saying that they've got this is a better pruning method or that and but mainly they're designed to uh, for the ease of harvesting and for commercial production and he was more concerned with the health of his orchard ecosystem more than simply production although it turned out that not surprisingly but it turned out that his yields were comparable to the neighbors again um, even using these um, simpler and less uh, um, labor-intensive methods. So, so he, for example, he he doesn't he he likes to grow trees from seed, but he admits, and these grow up into the natural form, and they're very strong, and they generally get very big. But of course, for commercial value, they're usually almost worthless. They're they're great in in the you know, as, as part of the, um, the forest community. But he does graft um, certain varieties onto rootstock, but he makes sure that what he grafts on there has not had the, the central leader clipped. And you, if, if, any, if you've gotten nursery stock for trees before, they always come from the nursery with the main leader already clipped. Once that happens, you've you've got to prune the tree forever. So he grew some of his own nursery stock, and he had to deal with the local nurseryman that that the, what he was going to get was going to was set aside, and the the main leaders were not cut when he grafted them. One of the things that occurs to me as I listen to you talk about this, and I think that. Um, Many of the things that you describe about his philosophy and his practices, they seem consistent to me with more ancient traditions in Japanese and Asian culture like Zen Buddhism and perhaps Shintoism and, and other, uh, Taoism would be another one. I wonder what your thoughts are on Fukuoka as um, an embodiment of some of these uh, valuable traditions of Japanese culture before uh, Western science really became uh, the modus operandi. Yeah, well, that's a good question, and there's really two parts to it. One of them would be his way of thinking, and the other would be his farming techniques. So let's do the way of thinking first. Um, I've heard eight or ten times when I was with him, people would ask, so so tell, tell us, uh, Fukuoka Sensei, you know, he was called Sensei, a teacher, um, is this Zen farming or is this uh, it sounds a lot like Taoism and he says no 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 it's got nothing to do with religion it's just farming it's just farming it's it's a timeless understanding and if if I were to call it Zen farming 
then right away what you would do is take my farming and put it into your Zen file. And then that would be a way that you say, oh, I understand it because I can compartmentalize this whole thing and call it Zen. So that would be kind of playing into our our need or uh, the need of our human intellect to try to understand things and by doing that gain control somehow and the, he didn't want he didn't want to do that so he said no no all I'm doing here is farming you know but when you're a farmer then you're out in nature and you see all of these wonderful dramas and these these things of beauty and you hear the 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 wind blowing through the trees and so forth and and you have the farmer has many opportunities to break through and see God directly and and to I don't know to him the religion the religions were an unnecessary structure that people had created to try to understand and this was really understanding is not part of this at all um you know the uh if you want to set them off you would just say so don't you think people can understand nature or can understand he says people can't really truly understand anything um and and so forth so and the other thing about is his farming going back to the way people used to farm or is it go is it something that for the future farming and he he said that that natural farming has it, it really doesn't matter where human society is in development or what fads are in and out this is a timeless understanding that has always existed and will always exist and it has nothing to do with the with where people are at the time although i'll say that a lot of these techniques in the whole system reminds me a lot of the way people practiced agriculture for several million years um you know with the hunting and gathering and uh rudimentary horticulture that was the beginning of gardening and this was going on for a long long time people did that for a long time uh, until of course plowed field agriculture and irrigated agriculture domestication of many plants was i mean of uh, many plants and animals came about around 12,000 years ago and just i know we don't want to go off into that subject but that agriculture had certain things built into it that led to well basically a nightmare for humanity and we're seeing the effects of that now and that incidentally too was technique the plowed fields and always needing to expand expand and also it was right about that time that people changed their way of thinking from being living within nature to somehow feeling superior and that the nature was just there to be used by people and that is kind of built in to the culture that developed over the past 12,000 years this concludes the first part of my interview with Larry Korn, discussing the topic of the life and thoughts and farming of Masanobu Fukuoka. 
Stay tuned as next week we will continue this conversation with Larry Korn in part two. And, and you can learn more about Masanobu Fukuoka, his thinking, and his farming. Now, before I wrap up, I wanted to share a few listener comments with the audience. The first was sent to me uh, by Louis, who wrote to me via Facebook. And Louis wrote, Wondering if you have any suggestions on concentrating or pooling efforts at transcribing and translating Agro-Innovations podcasts. Your comment about the Russian translation on a recent show reminded me of this. My interest is in developing and distributing these morphed media to an interested, nomadic, neopangy global tribe, specifically translating to Spanish. With the repeated reminder at the end of your and other shows about Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0, I am moving along with that. The idea is to use those audio commons and continuing with the mosaics through the co-creation and distribution of these nomadic cross-fertilizing packs or trans-space and time spores. I recently came upon www.permacultureportugal.ning.com whose focus is to find and translate media into Portuguese with a focus on permaculture. I am looking for a similar group or site that works towards creating and translating Spanish documents. Well, Louis, I do not know of any um, initiative that is attempting to do that with uh, the Agro-Innovations podcast or, in fact, any other uh, initiatives that are trying to do that with Spanish translations. However, I did want to share your comments with the listeners of the Agro-Innovations podcast, and perhaps uh, some of you will have some information for Louis. If you do, you can send that to me uh, at podcast at agroinnovations.com. Uh, there's also an email form via our website, agroinnovations.com. Uh, if you click on the contact link, you can get in touch with me that way. Of course, you can uh, follow Agro Innovations and get in touch via Twitter and Facebook. And if you do uh, friend me on Facebook, just let me know that you're a listener to the podcast. I kind of like to try to keep that straight and try to uh, only add people who have some relevance so if anybody out there knows of any initiatives um, in translating and transcribing information related to permaculture, or even better yet, specifically the Agro-Innovations podcast, or if you'd like to get something like that started, uh, please don't hesitate to get in touch with me. And uh, I will, of course, pass that information on to Louis. Well, I also uh, received some feedback on episode number 99 of the Agro-Innovations podcast, which is, the episode, uh, on Al- which is the episode on Alfred Crosby's book, Ecological Imperialism. And Alex wrote in the comments section of uh, that episode, I question how successful European agriculture actually is in the new world. I'm not discounting anything in Crosby's argument, but I think the quote-unquote success of European agriculture will be rather short-lived, or maybe it will need to be propped up by increasing inputs. It seems so much like a fire that has swept through and released a huge amount of calories quickly and will soon burn out. Indigenous agroforestry and pastoral systems seem to be much more successful in the long term, or at least successful for longer periods of time. Everything shifts, however, and successional resetting is constant. If European agriculture is indeed like a fire, sweeping through and resetting the landscape, it's an opportunity to reconstruct agroecological systems 
with even more diversity than there was before. Well, Alex, thank you for your comments. And if you would like to share your comments on a particular episode, this or any other episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, visit our website and uh, click on the comments link for the episode that you would like to comment on and leave us your thoughts. A reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations Podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. There is a link to the Creative Commons website and the specific license that this podcast is released under on the Agro Innovations website. Uh, so if you would like to know more about that, you can click on that link. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.